Imagine you're in the studio. You've been in Sunset Sound with Prince for 24 hours. You've just done something amazing. That you've just finished at six o'clock in the morning. Sun's coming up. You're kind of delirious. You're wrapping cables. You're uh, filling out the tape box labels. And uh, he goes and brushes his teeth. And he turns around. He comes back in. And he says, "Fresh tape." Fresh tape meaning I've got a song in my head, we're going again. If he starts a song, he won't leave the studio until it's finished. We've got another 24 to go. And it would make me laugh with, with joy and with the excitement of knowing, come on, let's do this, let's do this. Who was Prince? That is what I wish reporters were asking. And everything he touched was brilliant. He was the best pimp I've ever seen. He had more stamina than anyone you could imagine. What makes him an amazing singer is he's completely not self-conscious. He's the opposite of self-conscious. He's totally in the unconscious mind. He's completely willing to bear himself. After we went through a series of singers and nothing worked out, Prince was like, why don't you do it? And I said, "Uh, I'm a drummer. He said, you could do it, man. I said, Prince, what do you think out of all of the stuff you do? What do you think you're the best at? And he just kind of put his hand in, like, look in the sky, kind of like, he says, well. Welcome to Chapter 2 of Who Was Prince? Chapter 2 is called Body Don't Want to Quit, Gotta Get Another Hit. Because we're gathered here today to talk about how hard Prince worked. He was a man who was known to regularly put in 48-hour days. I'm your host, Torre, and if you really want to know who Prince was, you got to hear the story of Prince and Elizabeth Taylor. This is one of my favorite stories from the world of Prince. It's a story from Susan Rogers that she heard from Prince. Prince was by his nature uh, shy. He needed privacy. He needed to be protected from certain social engagements so that he could stay himself. So we were on the Purple Rain tour. Prince had been nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, The album was taken off. The movie's doing great. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone. He was a big, big star. Now, typically, because Prince liked his privacy, he didn't want to hang around backstage after a show and do the meet and greet and the shaking hands. He did not want that kind of attention. He didn't like it. He was very uncomfortable with it. Purple Rain was always the last song, so he wanted to either leave the stage and go take a shower, change clothes, and play an after party where he would play at a little club till 5 or 6 in the morning, or we'd go to a recording studio. But this one night in Los Angeles, his management told him, not tonight, you can't do it. You have to do the thing you hate to do, which is you have to come backstage afterward and you have to see these celebrities. These are the people who've nominated you for an Academy Award. These are the people who want to see you. And oh, by the way, Elizabeth Taylor is going to be there. There's some big, big, big celebrities here you have to stay backstage afterward and prince agreed now at the time i was his i was his full-time employee so i was on tour with him and i was uh his technician i'm there and i'm recording the show and my sweetheart my my former boyfriend the technician john sacchetti the one who told me about the job with prince who essentially got me this job old john sacchetti from uh, boston massachusetts was there and he was waiting to see me his girl i had managed to get him a comp ticket and uh, john was really really excited you know he got to see this prince show john was an electronics genius he was a designer he got a patent for a digital telephone in the early 1980s john was a self-taught genius from quincy massachusetts but john was from a, a italian family in a rough and tumble neighborhood of quincy Massachusetts. So he had this really strong Boston accent. And he would uh, he would say, Sue, uh, Sue, when he told me about the Prince, the Prince job, your dream job is waiting for you, Sue. Your dream job. Prince needs a technician, Sue. That was John Sacchetti. And he would say, like, hospital instead of hospital and Mayan instead of mine. And Prince absolutely loved him. Prince adored him because John was a genius with electronics, but John was just a, a, a funny kid and uh, and a good man. These are working class people. Prince, uh, John Sacchetti, myself, we came from lower middle class backgrounds. Our parents worked for a living and struggled and uh, it, the, the, that's what we know. Life is a struggle for many of us who work really hard. That's the cloth we're cut from. So poor Prince from this, this background is going to have to go backstage afterwards and he's going to have to stand there and try to talk to Elizabeth Taylor and all these other celebrities. So the scene was Prince is backstage and in the green room back there, the room is packed 
with many, many Hollywood celebrities, including Elizabeth Taylor and Prince. And Elizabeth Taylor and Prince are having this conversation. I imagine it was pretty one-sided. And they're surrounded by bodyguards, and you can kind of imagine that all of these Hollywood folks who are in this room are probably holding their breath and pinching themselves, recognizing that at this moment, they are backstage with two of the biggest celebrities in the world right now, the iconic Elizabeth Taylor and this hot rock star, Prince. And But there was one person in that room who didn't see what everyone else saw, and that person was John Sacchetti. John saw a brother in trouble. He saw Prince standing there almost, I'm no doubt, catatonic, while this woman in a white mink coat and diamond earrings, whose shoes are worth more than John's whole life, <laughs> having a conversation. So John threw himself on the sword. John, who was a, a very uh, avid and enthusiastic drug user, <laughs> John elbowed himself in between Elizabeth Taylor and Prince. And John stood with his back to Elizabeth Taylor and got right up in Prince's face because this was the Boston way. This is just what you do with a brother. Yo, Prince, man, woo! The show was wicked awesome, woo! Prince, yo, man, yo. And when John, he was kind of tall and thin and he, he looked a little bit like a, a young John Travolta and he would stand over you with that thick accent and he had a beer in his hand and he's saying, yo, Prince, the show was awesome. Yo, I dropped two tabs of acid before the show. I, I smoked a big split. I was drinking beer out of my eyes. Prince, that show, dee 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 so Prince's bodyguard, Gilbert Davidson, was able to grab Prince and say, come on, we, you know, sorry, Elizabeth, uh, there's a, there's a, who let this nutcase backstage? Sorry, we got to go. So they grab Prince and they get out of there. I can imagine that the whole room must have been thinking, who let this person in and why did he ruin our good time? This crude, uncouth ruffian. Well, anyway, I heard about this story from Prince. He told me that story, laughing about it, and he said, man, he said, that guy saved me. I love that guy. Prince was smart enough to know. John took a bullet for him because John just saw, he saw Prince as as Prince was. He saw a kid who didn't want to be in that situation, and John knew how to save him. He didn't want to be around people who saw him as a celebrity. He needed people who saw him as a working man. He needed people who facilitated his work. That's what he was all about, was the work, not the money or the fame or the celebrity. He was all about the work. Deep down, Prince didn't see himself as like Elizabeth Taylor. He saw himself as like John Sacchetti. He was a blue-collar working man whose tools included a guitar and fame, but he was a worker. Yeah, he had a great working man's ethic. I don't know how the man did it. The work was, was punishing and difficult. It was also very, very rewarding, and he was good to us. It, occasionally, I would do three days in a row. One On one special occasion, I did four days in a row, 96 hours, but 48 hours was not uncommon, and 24 was actually quite common you sitting in the studio for 48 straight hours oh yeah was common fairly common yeah now common was 24 hours but not uncommon was um, was 48 michael nelson played horns in the band for years in my uh association with them it seemed like it was literally 20 hours a day seven days a week there was like a window between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. where a lot of times he wasn't at paisley park or he was you know maybe taking a cat nap or something but other than that, you could pretty much count on him be the, being there doing some sort of creative activity. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just um, relegated to, to creating music. I mean, he was involved in all aspects of everything that went on at Paisley Park, from when we were getting ready for tours, the choreography, the, the lighting design, the set design. Tour manager Alan Leeds was also captivated by Prince's natural talent. Once I went on the road with him and started witnessing rehearsals and sound checks, I was just like everybody else who ever saw him, just completely stunned by his innate musicality. I mean, we throw the word gift around. This guy was, be it's beyond a gift because he could play guitar better than his guitarists. He could play bass better than his bassists. He could play drums as good as his drummers. He could sing. He taught himself how to dance and perform. And everything he touched was brilliant. 
not just good, but brilliant. To the point where if he never did anything but play guitar, he would have been successful and been one of the greatest guitar players in rock and roll history. If all he did was play bass, he would have been the first called bass player. And same with drums and keyboards. And you just sit there and scratch your head and said, how in the world does one musician this young become so proficient on so many instruments? Because each one of those instruments is a separate skill set. When you watched him work, it was like so little hesitation. While he was recording a drum track, he was already composing the bass track in his head. Then he'd record the bass track, and he was already composing the guitar tracks in his head. Talk about doing, you know, multitasking. This is ridiculous. I mean, there's people who take weeks to do one song because they concentrate on the drums for a couple of days, then the bass for a couple of days, and he's doing it all in one day, and he's basically doing one, writing one while he's thinking, while he's performing the other. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was inhuman. It, was, it wasn't normal. There was never stop and wait for this guy to play this right. No, that never happened. <laughs> he was such an expert. He was, um, you'd mentioned Michael Jordan uh, playing basketball. He was as good as it gets. So... Anything he can imagine in his mind's ear, he can play. The execution's going to be perfect. Prince moved so quickly through the recording process that he repeatedly complained about the time it took for the studio's machines to rewind. During the course of the actual creation, the creativity, there was no second guessing. It just flowed, and he didn't interrupt the flow. As a matter of fact, the biggest complaint his engineers would have was that the tape machines didn't rewind quickly enough to suit him. He would be so impatient, and he would literally stand by the tape machine and try to egg it on the way you would with body. It felt like Carlton Fisk directing his famous home run, his, his body language, trying to keep the ball fair as it goes over the fence. Well, he's trying to, to, to will the tape machine to move quicker, to rewind quicker. And he used to talk to Susan Rogers, his engineer, but isn't there some way you can oil it or do something to speed it up? I get so tired of waiting for the tape to rewind. And, you know, it was, how, do you, how do you deal with that? Nobody, nobody else is like that. How did Prince make it through those marathon sessions when the engineers were falling asleep beside him while he was pressing on through for 24 to 48 hours or more? Because from many accounts, he was not doing drugs. He was not taking coke like so many 80s stars. People close to him say the strongest thing he was on was sugar. I used to make lemon cakes for him. Several people recall Prince binge eating cake during those sessions, including lighting designer Leroy Bennett. He'd call me up and want me to make a cake for him because what he would do is eat the cake all night long while he was recording. So, I mean, obviously the sugar was keeping him awake. It was definitely hard for his engineers to keep up. Susan Rogers. The things that were asked of us was incredible. Like staying up for 24 hours was just routine. And, and there were so many times I was up for 48 hours. It's just what you do. It's just what you do. How did you function? You know, there's the exhilaration of knowing that you're working with this artist, that, that this is your dream job. So you're so excited. You just want to get the work out because I was a fan of his. That helped a lot. I couldn't wait to hear what we were doing. Everyone was in awe of Prince's work ethic and his superhuman stamina. Without using drugs, he would stay up for 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours, working furiously on a song. And of course, there were the effects of sleep deprivation, the moodiness, the irritableness toward the later hours, and he'd go home and crash, sleeping for 12 to 18 hours, and then back at it again. He would write lyrics in bed before he was asleep or while he was asleep in his dreams or right after he woke up. He was constantly writing lyrics or melodies and he'd go to the studio every day like any worker going to an office every day. He made almost a song a day. Sometimes pop musicians can make songs quickly, but for many it takes at least a week to complete a song. I've never heard of another musician who completed a song a day all the time. Chuck Zwicky was one of Prince's engineers. He just kept going, kept working until, you know, he had it. He would definitely see his way through it. And I, I have had you know, more than one 40-hour day with him. Pretty intense. He never spent an inordinate amount of time on one song. I certainly worked with artists who agonize over a, a single song for many, many days. I've never seen Prince do that. He had a very clear idea in his head about what the thing needs to do, what needs to sound like, and he gets there very quickly. So typically, I get a 40-hour session, and that's that we started with three songs, and, 
and it took to me complete mix socks. Is that fast? Oh yeah. It makes ideas happen very quickly. Two things about Prince that I really admire the most is that he never second guesses himself and he never scratches his head. He never says, I wonder if this is good or not. He knows intuitively what makes something work and intuitively what does not prevent something from working. So if he leaves in something that seems a little odd, he knows intuitively whether that is going to help the overall impression or not. I mean, if nothing he puts on his records sounds like a mistake, although a lot of it sounds unusual. He sees that what these little, what the extra little flavor bits will do to the, the entire person. Musicians marveled at Prince's sense of detail and precision. His drum programming, they say, was extraordinary, in part because he was thoughtful enough to program in small mistakes that made the machine sound more human. And when he did backgrounds, he wouldn't just do it once and triple it, he'd do three entirely different recordings and make each background singer sound a little different, giving each one their own personality. When Prince did his vocals, he made everyone leave the studio. He had to do that part in total privacy. I imagine it was so he could feel total freedom and abandon to do whatever, to sing, to scream, to flirt, whatever. And Prince wasn't finished with the song until he made sure it would sound good, even in car speakers that were crappy. In the early 80s, he often tested songs on the speakers in singer Jill Jones's car. He really would always go out to the car and listen to the songs in the car. He always wanted mixes to be for people who had Cracker Jack speakers. He was like, everybody can't afford really great speakers. So a lot of times, and I had a really shitty car, so it was like my car was really good to listen to a mix to see if it was, you know, going to fly. So he really would pay attention to those kind of things and those little details. Susanna Melvoin, a singer and a longtime girlfriend of Prince's, said his sense of abandon, his sense of freedom is what helped him become a great singer. I'm a singer. So to give you an example of of what makes him an amazing singer is he's completely not self-conscious. He's the opposite of self-conscious. He's totally in the unconscious mind. He's completely willing to bear himself. And to get a good vocal out, to get a bad vocal out, to get to get the vocal out, you must let yourself be exposed. You must open yourself up and hear the shitty notes and hear the good notes and not compete with someone outside of you, not to compete with the best other best singers, but to be the best at you is to allow yourself to be your most vulnerable. So that goes into every aspect of his playing, his production, his performing. You have to completely reveal yourself. What made Prince extraordinary was he was willing to go 100%, 100% in all of it. Never doubted himself, never doubted the vocal, never doubted his playing, never doubted any of it. That meant him trying anything. Prince could play almost any instrument except for horns, but if he absolutely needed to... He'd pick up a horn and try his hardest. Once Jill saw him struggling with a horn line. When he was recording my G-Spot song, he wanted a sax on it. And I don't think Eric Leeds wasn't around at that time. But so he sat there all day and all night playing those riffs by himself. I'd since gone upstairs and was, you know, watching a movie or whatever. And he was like, oh, burp, burp, burp. And you could hear him making his mistakes. And it was like he taught himself everything he was hearing in his head. And he got it down. I couldn't believe he sat there for like, I mean, 12 hours playing this. And you'd hear all these mistakes. I was dying. I was just like cracking up. That fits with one of Prince's central musical ideas that Jill described to me. To Prince, it was less important to have perfect pitch or to play the song perfectly than it was to truly believe in the song and its message. He had to believe that you believed. He wasn't a stickler for your pitch if he thought you really felt it, if you felt what you were singing, because sometimes that could win. I think the belief is when the artist is completely in sync with the character of the song. That's with the words. 
when they just sound real. A lot of times he and I did a lot of screaming and, you know, sometimes because your pitch, if you believe something, it's not, he could make anybody sing. He could make Vanity sing. And what was so amazing is she believed she could sing. And so I learned a lot by that because there's nobody else in my mind who could sing her songs ever the way she did it. And even if they tried, they would always fall into the trap of oversinging it or not really believing because, and it's hard to explain, he could make anyone sing if they believed it, if they believe it. From Prince, she learned that technique is less crucial than finding the right fit between the singer and the music. I think I developed this, um, I would probably say, to be a little bit more free and to have my personality shine a little bit through. I wasn't always the most technical either because we tried songs that were typically top 40 sounding for me and it just never worked. I was not a pop singer. It just wasn't and I, it was like I had vomit in my mouth when I was singing. It just didn't work. It wasn't my personality. I couldn't quite connect to. So what I learned from him is that he and I, he could always find music and songs that appealed to my spirit and my soul. And that was what was so good, you know? Prince was a true genius who was thoughtful about every aspect of his music and downright philosophical about it. Eric Leeds said once in a recording session, Prince told him, I want you to play a solo on this song, but I want you to approach it as if you just picked up the saxophone for the first time in your life. What he took from that was Prince wanted him to play with a sense of freedom, a beginner's joy and looseness rather than a professional's precision. Leeds said Prince was very good at being able to reach inside you and bring things out of you that you wouldn't naturally be able to do yourself. Of course, Prince's insane work ethic wasn't just about the studio. He also rehearsed his bands endlessly, making certain every bit was tight, tight, tight. Wendy Melvoin. I mean, we spent 12 hours a day together working out dance steps. You know what I mean? Or one groove in a, an extended version of a song for eight hours. He didn't do that in his later time. And that is part of like in the you trenches. On one yeah, we'd play one hours. we'd play one groove for eight hours. We'd been known to do that. There were days where we could play one 16-bar groove for hours on end, just mastering the groove. And then maybe Prince would be going around from different instruments and trying different things or dance moves. Remember, there's every rehearsal was videotaped, so he'd be doing his testing his moves or we'd have to do choreography or, you know, stuff like that. I mean, why would players of your level need eight hours on a groove because because the, the groove sounded good everybody that's one of the things about that group of people in my experience worked so well is that we were all totally into doing that and we'd be like yeah it does sound good yeah we are good yeah we're a great band Brown Mark said Prince used the endless rehearsals to insert the music into the band's soul. Um, I hated it at first, you know. You know, I really did. I mean, it's like, come on, man. How many times can you play the same thing? But he told me this philosophy once. He said, the more you learn it, the more it becomes who you are. And then you don't have to practice it. You just play it. It becomes who you are. So... Once we developed that feel, because we played the junk so much for so long, Purple Rain, God, I can't, to this day, I can't listen to that song. Because we played it so much that it became second nature to us. And so when that happens, when you hit stage, the dancing, the choreography, the, the energy, all of that, see, that's where our concentration is. It isn't on the musicianship. We already got that. It's going to come out naturally. Jerome said the rehearsals gave the band confidence. This dude, this dude, man, we would rehearse one song, 18 hours. Stop. Over that. Okay, do it again. Okay, stop. And he would be there with us. 
everyone would have to play their part and get judged and then you will put it together and then you will play it over and over and over and Prince would add little parts in there and you play it over and over over and over and then you would move on to the next thing you might like I said you might spend the whole day on one song it was an amazing process but it gave us a work ethic that allows us to be second to none. And after the band finished... Then he would leave our rehearsal and go to his rehearsal. And hey, sometimes magical things would happen in rehearsal. Jerome became known for being Morris Day's onstage valet. And one of the highlights of the time stage show would be when Jerome would come out with a full-length mirror and let Morris check himself out right there in the middle of a song. It was fly as hell. And it all started in rehearsal. Jerome recalls. In the beginning when we were um, rehearsing at this place called the Yasm, the owner, he was fond of doing plaster uh, statues and making homemade mirrors and hanging them on a wall and then selling them. Period of time there, we were going through that exercise of rehearsing one song every day for hours upon end. And now, you know, everybody's in this mode. So I took a chance and in the song says, it breaks down and says, somebody bring me a mirror. And he had these plaster mirrors that were painted gold lame all around the room. I grabbed one of the weird mirrors off the wall and I ran up to Morris and put it in front of me. Just all on your own. And Prince said, ah, he broke up, rolled on the floor, laughed his heart out, came up to me, hugged me and said, I want you to do that every time. Every time, let's do it again. So here we go. Here we're rehearsing this this stick <laughs> for another two hours. Morse just jumped right into it. The first time I put it in front of me, he just stood in it and looked at it and primped himself and pulled his hair back and fixed his clothes up. And from that point on, you know, it became just a, a second nature. Rehearsals were long because Prince had to make sure everything was precise. Before a tour, they would rehearse 10 hours a day for five days a week for a month. I said, how is it that talented, experienced musicians who know all the songs could need that much time? Trombotist Greg Boyer said he wanted to keep changing things so they never got to the point of, oh, I know everything. You can't go into that saying you know all the songs because whatever the songs were in the recorded version, they were something different live. Like you had to figure out how one song went into the other. Yeah, you had to learn the song so you'd know the core of it. But then there were all these little intricacies and all this nuance that he would add into the song because he wanted the live performance to be something bigger and better than the record. Otherwise, you could just put the CD on and not buy the ticket. So he would do little segues, and then he'd like, no, nah, scratch that, I want to do it another way. He would change the length of certain sections, like you know, he might make the bridge twice as long, and he might do something vocally that required some time. So he was constantly changing it and just when you think you had it I mean this happened even on tour just when you think you were comfortable with everything he would just change it all and I think his mission with that was he didn't want anybody resting on the laurels of I got it he wanted everybody to be comfortable enough with playing the music but still having to think and watch him the whole time it was never dull playing with him. He was never one of those things where, oh man, I've been playing this same set for five years now. He didn't want that to happen. He didn't want the music to get stale. So they were practicing and playing all the time. Wendy Melvoin said, Normal people have sound checks at five, so they check their sound and then they get off stage by six and then they like open the doors at seven and you know, you're backstage, you're getting ready, your show is on like at nine o'clock. Right, that's like a normal show. With Prince, during our time together, we'd get to sound check at three, and we'd play from three to six. Just play the whole set, work out another thing, maybe write another song. 
Then we'd go backstage, get ready for the show. Show starts at, say, 9 o'clock. We play from 9 to 11.45, 12. Get off stage, clean up for an hour, go to a club and play again. Usually after the gig, there was an after show, something that started at 1 or 2 a.m. at some small club, a stripped-down show where Prince just played music, no artifice, just sitting and jamming. I caught one of those at a Manhattan club called Club USA, and another in Hollywood where there were like 20 people, and another at a club in Manhattan called Tramps. These shows you just had to know about. There was no advertising, just a whisper campaign spread by people in the camp. Prince would just sit there and play on his guitar, and it would be amazing. I was walking out of a Prince concert in 1997 when one of his publicists grabbed me by the shoulder and pulled me in. She said, he's going on at Tramps around midnight. I said, I'll be there. The show started after one. I remember Claire Danes was there, and you saw Prince on guitar, Quest Love on drums, and D'Angelo on the keys. Oh, man. Playing for a few hundred people who could hardly believe their luck when this soul-funk supergroup walked out on stage. They jammed through the ballad of Dorothy Parker and Brown Sugar, turning it into an amazing groove that blew everyone away. Then after maybe 10 or 15 minutes, Quest Love, impish Quest Love, looked at D'Angelo, and even though he knew he shouldn't do it because that was a time when Prince was refusing to play his old erotic songs, but Quest couldn't help himself. Quest called for them to go into head. As soon as they started, Prince was gone. He disappeared like a magician, poof. But it was magical while it lasted. Morris Day also spoke of Prince's work ethic and how it transformed him as a musician. Morris was the leader of a funk group called The Time that was in large part a Prince creation. He wrote their songs, he shaped who they would be on stage. In this group, Morris became one of the most compelling frontmen of the decade. On stage, he was in full pimp mode, acting super cool and sexy, flirting with the audience, and showing off how much he was in love with himself. When it started, it was a lot uh, of an alter ego situation for Prince. There were songs that he had cut for himself and set aside that we ended up using. So it started out being an alter ego situation for him, and then it turned out to be a Frankenstein monster situation. Morris had long been a drummer in Prince's orbit, but he first got up on stage as a lead singer because when Prince and Morris were putting together the time, Prince auditioned a series of singers and none of them felt right. After we went through a series of singers and nothing worked out, Prince was like, why don't you do it? And I said, uh, uh, I said, I don't really want to do that. Besides, I'm a drummer. He said, you could do it, man. Back when they were in Grand Central, Morris would sing a few songs so Prince had seen him do it. That's why he had confidence in Morris. But at that time, Morris was nowhere near the confident frontman he would become. Not at all. Uh, not at all. I just sat, stand there and sing the song. So I said, I don't even know what I would do as a lead singer of a band. And he said, just put your hand in your pocket and be cool. And that's what I did. If you watch the cool video, my right hand does not come out of my pocket the whole song. Morris developed into a serious frontman thanks to years of Prince's tutelage, which Morris referred to as boot camp, which he said meant constant recording, endless rehearsals, working on vocals, practicing choreography, everything possible to be airtight for the studio and the stage. We just ran it and ran it and ran it uh, to the point where you could just, in your sleep, do the show. In all of that rehearsing and touring and princely advice, Morris found the performer that he wanted to be. By the time we got to 84, and once we started going on tour with him, the rehearsals were rigorous. We would rehearse around the clock, go out and do the shows, and we do uh, months at a time, and come back and rehearse some more. And each time we went out, every time I stepped on stage, I realized something different in myself, how I wanted to convey myself and come across as an artist, you know, and I just kept adding. You do little things and people like it, and you put that in the, in the spank bank and save it for later and do it again, you know? Prince's dedication to music, his obsession with music, wasn't just making him better. It was making all the musicians around him better. He was compelled to be constantly immersed in music because it was everything to him and because he couldn't sleep. Several people said he was a chronic insomniac who went days without sleeping. Alan Leeds. 
I mean, he would work, you know, we talk about Prince's work ethic, but sometimes there were, there were occasions where what we saw as a work ethic was really just him trying to occupy himself because he couldn't sleep. He couldn't turn off his tapes in his head. Um, and, you know, is that because he's just so bloody creative? Sure, that's part of it, because there were always ideas floating in his head. Song, ideas for songs, ideas for videos, ideas for movies, ideas for how his band should dress, ideas for how he should dress, ideas for what girl he would take to the gig next week. He couldn't turn it off. And sometimes you could even see him struggling to do that, where he would, he might be, you know, late, late at night in the studio, and you could see him physically starting to wane a little bit, and maybe he would start to talk about something trivial, like, hey, have you seen any basketball games this year? You know, out of nowhere, he would change the subject to something that, that really wasn't of any major significance. And you saw he was, he was trying, wrestling with trying to figure out how to just calm down and maybe call it a night. But it didn't always work, and and as a result, he expected everybody to indulge his ideas. And the ideas, he he wasn't a person to write the idea down and save it. It was like, okay, it's on the list now. I got to I got to check it off the list as quickly as possible because the ideas are piling up. So it might mean get going home to bed at three and then four in the morning, getting up and going back to the studio to turn the machines back on and. Um, you know, either finish the song he started earlier that night or start a new one from scratch, God only knows. It, it just, he was just a machine that wouldn't stop. Jerome knew Prince as a teenager, worked with him throughout the 80s, and... I'd never seen him sleep. Never. I'd go to sleep, he'd be awake. i wake up, he'd be awake. <laughs> Even when we would travel and be in mansions and things, you know. I get up and get ready to give me some cereal or whatever, and he's up at the table. And I'm like, dude, I'm asleep. Damn. I don't know how he did it. According to Jerome and many other sources, he did not do it by using drugs. When he was around me, I don't I wouldn't allow that shit. I'm putting it out there for everybody. They can say what the fuck they want to. He didn't do no drugs when I was around him. I didn't see it. I did not see it. Tori, I'm that motherfucker that look you in your eyes when I see you. I'm looking for that demon because I don't need to be around with your ass going into a seizure <laughs> and expecting me to give you some mouth to mouth. <laughs> I honestly, right here, God strike me dead. I've never seen him do drugs. So how was it that he's staying up two, three days in a row? I don't know. It even, even when we would go out, we hang out of Studio 54, Limelight, all those big clubs, hanging out, Grace Jones across the room, you know, all the great white artist trying to get behind the rope and stuff. And we're sitting back there. I got my black ass back there. <laughs> I'm behind the belly rope. <laughs> I get my drink on. Sometimes I probably wouldn't get to three drinks before he would slide my drink away. He'd be like, you cool. Yeah, he had more stamina than anyone you could imagine. I think part of that was pathology as well. With a work ethic like that, there was no time for anything but music. Prince didn't have normal friendships. He had no crew to hang with. He hated small talk. Almost every single conversation was about a song, a tour, a rehearsal, something musical. Alan Leeds told me once they were rehearsing for a tour, and when everyone showed up for rehearsal, Prince said, no, let's go play softball for a while. It was one of the first really nice days of spring. Everybody in Minnesota celebrates those days because the, the winters are so bloody long. So we came to rehearsal, and, and it turns out Prince had sent out uh, one of his assistants to buy a ton of baseball gloves and a couple of softballs and some bats. And his idea was we're going to take everybody out to a field and play softballs. Everybody was down for this. By the same token, we found him on the softball field just as competitive as everywhere else. You know, he wanted to fight over pitches that were too close and he wanted to be the pitcher and he wanted to be the hitter and he wanted, you know, he had to be the, 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 the star of the show. He was going to be A-Rod and he was pretty good, but he made sure you noticed. Now, by the same token, he's standing on first base having just hit a single and he's talking to the first baseman, whoever it was, about the arrangement that we're going to do with Dove's Cry when we change the show and um, what the video concept is for the next single. Then he gets to second base and he starts talking about what the wardrobe is going to be for the band on the next tour. 
Then he gets to third base and says, you know, it's getting kind of hot out here. Maybe we should start thinking about going into rehearsing for a while. He was both gifted and he worked harder than everyone. That's part of why he was as good at making music as anyone on the planet. Wendy Melvoin. I don't think there was a better guitar player. He mastered that instrument with astonishing agility and ability. He mastered his internal clock. His timing was unbelievable. I mean, he he knew how to push and pull a rhythm that to this day I still am, and I'm, am amazed by because he didn't rely on, you know, like moving your Pro Tools um, waveform three milliseconds forward to sound like you're like rushing a drum beat and then pulling a thing back or pulling your vocal back, you know, five milliseconds in a track so that you sound like you're really... He did it all live. And it was just his feel, and he was incredible at it. He mastered the neck board. He mastered his tone. He knew exactly how to, like, dance and choke the neck when there was a distortion coming out somewhere. He knew how to actually carve his distortion. It was beyond like tools. It was like part of the way his hands touched the guitar. He was able to control sustain. He was able to control rhythm. He was able to control the tone, his foot pedals. Everything was incredibly well-timed. And he could think 20 steps ahead. It was incredible. People repeatedly said most other guitar players hold the instrument, but Prince, Prince became one with it. He became his instrument. When you watched Prince play and hear him play, there was a sense that there were blurred lines between the guy and the instrument. It was him. It was him. It was unbelievable. And he mastered lots of other instruments. He could program drums better than most. The guy could play the hell out of his Lynn drum machine, and he knew how to work it. His bass playing, I believe his bass playing got better as well. His piano playing, to me, he was a great gospel piano player and a great funk and soul player. And he could play the hell out of his synths. You know, he's a great soloist on his synths. You know, he knew exactly how to bend and use his pitch wheel and to, you know, elicit sort of like, you know, he used to say, break my back, break my back, where you'd, you'd feel a note just barely hit the beat or bend barely up to the root note or just past the root note to the third. And you'd just, he'd say, I want you to break my back, break, break my back, where you're trying to just feel it and you're bending your back forward, bending, bending, bending. Ah, oh, there it is. He always wanted the musicians around him to do that kind of thing. So he could do that all the time. He always was a great singer, and he could sing live better than most. He knew exactly how his voice sounded live and knew how to work it, never needed inner ear monitors, never switched to that form of listening, always relied on the monitors on the floor or the house sound. He's not one of the new generation of dudes who wear in-ear monitors and listens that way. It's just that's not his style. And he was a master at it. Um, but I think that his guitar playing is the one thing that was... Interstellar. Prince could do almost everything in music. Sing, play, write, produce, on and on. He was elite in almost every area of music. But what did he think was his best skill? Morris Hayes asked him once. I said, Prince, what do you think out of all of the stuff you do, what do you think you're the best at? And he just kind of put his hand in the chin, like look in the sky, kind of like, he says, well, he said, you know, I hate bad lyrics. He says, at the end of the day, Morris, I'm a poet. He said, you know, I like to read poetry. And he said, nobody reads anymore. And he just said, so I, at the end of the day, I think I'm a better lyricist. And I said, you know what, man, I, I agree. I think you're right. I don't care what era, what sounds or whatever, if you take away the lyrics off of any of his music, off of any song you could pick, it never was just some throwaway lyrics. It never was, it's always something clever or simple, but great. And I said, you know what, man, I 100% agree with you, bro because I had to learn a lot of his lyrics because I played a lot of background vocal samples, so I needed to know what he was saying. So I had to read the lyrics 
in order to like really know where to lay these things down and and, and that's what caused me to kind of read his lyrics and I'm like this is a genius it's just genius what he can do and how great he is and how quickly he can do it was there anything he could not do well some of the musicians who love him say there was a level he could not or would not reach he was a musical genius whose technique was impeccable but there's a level of personal vulnerability and inner pain that he was not accessing in his music. It seems that his inability to be vulnerable and truly open up to other people and let them see the real prince, that was evident in his music. That's what Wendy Melvoin sees. People in the world that when they listen to Prince play the piano, weep. And that's totally true. I'm talking about a certain kind of trained musician ear that hears harmonics in a certain way. If you listen to Eric Satie and you listen to Aldo Ciccolini playing Eric Satie or Arthur Rubinstein playing Chopin's Nocturnes, you're going to feel a crack in your being. Prince couldn't do that kind of crack. He could play soul and gospel and make you so impassioned that you're going to scream and yell and whoop and holler. And maybe you go into a frenzy with tears because you're so excited by what you're hearing. But the really quiet, intimate heartbreak stuff, Prince didn't do well on piano. It was so hard for him to be totally brokenhearted without there being a sense of showbiz to it. That was too vulnerable to him. He could listen to Joni Mitchell and he could cry. I mean, there's serious heartbreak in the words and the voicings on her guitar or piano that she uses that just elicit you going deeper into a part of yourself. That's what that kind of music does. Prince couldn't, couldn't tap that part of himself. It was too scary and it was way too vulnerable because he was way too self-conscious. Part of the problem is that Prince turned himself into a great musician so he could cover up his personal shortcomings and the parts of him that were underdeveloped. He had a rough childhood that left him scarred and traumatized, reaching deep into his emotional well and touching on painful feelings for deep songs may have been a bit too much. Becoming a rock star meant Prince would have all the love and all the affirmation he needed. Alan Leeds. I think the most revealing moment that I spent with Prince early on was in the car on the way to the premiere of Purple Rain, which was at the then Man's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. And of course, this was the biggest night of his career. The, the, the whole dream of making a movie that everybody was skeptical about um, had turned out right. And the initial reaction to the film, the previews were off the hook. Um, the music was amazing, and we really felt that this was going to be his step into superstardom, and he had to know that, the attention he was getting. I mean, MTV was following his every step. Um, if there had been a TMZ, they'd have been living in his closet. And, um, you know, it, it, it was a, a, what was supposed to be a celebratory night, which it turned out to be. But we're in the car, and we, we came out of the hotel, the band, Prince and the band, in full regalia, dressed for the, for the uh, premiere in the kind of outfits that they wore in the film. Prince picked a flower out of the garden that surrounded the front of the hotel. And we got in the limo, and it was a parade of limos because Wendy and Lisa had their own car. Matt Fink and his girlfriend had a car. Um, and I was in the car with Prince in the back seat. Chick Huntsbury was with the driver in the front seat. There was a red carpet, and Prince would be the last one to arrive. And of course, first the, the individual band members would get there and get their red carpet moment. And then we, we had walkie-talkies. This was before cell phones. We had walkie-talkies with our security guys who were already at the theater on the grounds and they were coordinating with us, telling us when to pull around the corner with the cars so that we'd arrive at the right time for the MTV coverage and, you know, so on and so on. So I'm in the car with Prince and we're in the back seat and he's holding this flower and kind of gripping it with both hands, the way you would a baseball bat almost. And 
All of a sudden, Chick's walkie-talkie went off, and it was one of his, one of our crew at the venue telling Chick to hold up because th there's so many people there, so many fans screaming that we gotta wait for the way to clear because it's, it's you can't pull up yet. You gotta wait. You gotta wait. We're on hold. And Prince grabbed my hand. His hand was shaking, and he literally grabbed my wrist, and his voice cracked. It broke. He said, whoa, 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 "What did they say?" And I honestly thought he was going to lose it. And, and for that split second, he did. And I repeated very calmly because I really, now it's my gig to calm him down. I mean, I've been spending my life dealing with artists, some of whom have butterflies before they go on stage, and you learn what works. In the storm, you've got to be the voice of reason and have the calmest voice in the car. So I, I drew on that experience and just very calmly looked at him and said, they said, there's a huge crowd, everybody's excited, and we're going to slow down a little bit. And he took a breath, exhaled, and then the moment passed. And from that point on, his voice was back to normal, his look was back to normal. But for that 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever it was, he was that little kid rejected by his mother. He totally, totally freaked out and lost control. And I treasure that moment because it told me he's human. <laughs> because this is the guy who basically tried to convince you 24-7 that he wasn't human, that he was somehow superhuman and had powers and, and um, that God had bestowed upon him gifts and powers that mere mortals didn't have. And for this moment, he was one of us. Even on the way to the premiere of Purple Rain, he was still... That little kid rejected by his mother. People who were close to him say, deep down, Prince was unhappy. Alan Leeds said Prince was suspicious and couldn't trust people and was paranoid of life in general and clearly troubled by personal demons. Leeds said the more they learned about him and how his mother basically walked away from him and his father struggled to raise him and the kinds of rejection he suffered as a young kid, that would not lead to him being a secure adult. People told me that Prince saw himself as a victim. How could that be, given that he lived a life where so many of his dreams came true and he was able to do anything he wanted? Well, it seems that he carried inside him the trauma and the scars of feeling like his mother abandoned him. Well, I think he felt, in a sense, his mother had abandoned him. And it's, you know, you can play amateur shrink and just assume that that's a big part of the reason for his lack of trusting people and so on and so on. The cliche goes, if you can't trust your mother, who can you trust? So much of what Prince did was driven by fear. Fear of someone else having control. Because he felt he couldn't trust his mom to be there for him. So how could he trust anyone else? How could he ever relinquish control? Prince's rosebud was his mom. That little kid rejected by his mother. What really happened in this troubled childhood that left him so scarred? Who was his mom? And who was his dad? That's chapter three of Who Was Prince. Thanks for listening to Who Was Prince. Please share with your friends if you like the show. Our executive producers were me, Torre, Chris Colbert, Adele Coleman, and Ryan Woodhall. Our technical producer, Byron Hunt. And our distribution was by DCP Entertainment.